Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word today. May we be filled with a fresh sense of wonder and your glory as we hear your holy word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. The scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 20. You can follow along in your pew Bible or in your program. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put me here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, why is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel to the woman, he said. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken for dust you are, and to dust you'll return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rip. You know, um, something about hearing scripture that makes it come alive. And even as Rip was reading, I just, I heard more that, um, I mean, I've spent the past six weeks just reading this over and over again, and I keep hearing stuff that I didn't see. So um, I'm going to take about 45 minutes now, and uh, maybe longer, to, to, to just share all the extra stuff that I heard. I wish we had extra time. Um, it's been funny. I, I, I thought at first that we would just take three weeks, one week for Genesis 1, one week for Genesis 2, one week for Genesis 3, as we've been looking at, at just early Genesis for the past now six weeks. It's taken twice as long, and I feel like we could go further. Uh, we do need to, to move on, and so we'll start moving on. This will be the last morning that we spend in this, but I've been struck by how rich Scripture is, and the more we just sit and marinate in it, the more we taste the flavor of God and His grace. So this morning, uh, we're going to finish by considering a theme that we really started two weeks ago, and we're going to really think about the curse of sin. The reading was a lot of curse language, and we heard that God curses certain things. He curses the serpent. He curses the ground. He curses, uh, puts a curse, in a sense, over our work, and we're going to look more into that. You know, most of this series, we've been asking almost idealistic questions, what, is, what does God think of us? And why did God make us? And what did he make us for? What work did he create us to do? And how does God invite us to live in his kingdom? But our world is far from ideal. And it can be jarring to ask these questions, what, what is the good of our work, for instance, when we realize that our work is full of what we would call things that are not good? And even if it's not just our work, like it's strictly defined, just our nine to five, but broadly, our, our whole lives, we all experience hurt and brokenness and despair and, and hopelessness. And we experience that, and loved ones and our family and our friends experience these things. If God created everything good, then why is there all of this hurt and brokenness and despair in the world? Why, why does the world feel like a slog? I have a, one mentor who told me once, he said, Chris, everything worth doing is uphill. And that's been really helpful, but why? why? Like, come on, couldn't something worth doing just be easy for once? All these things, as it turns out, result from the curse of sin. Two weeks ago, we spent a little more time looking at sin itself and the nature and where does it come from, the source and the root of sin from our desire to be like God and wanting to be able to judge what is good and what is evil for ourselves. This week, we're going to spend more time thinking about the curse of sin. And we'll finish by asking, how do we reverse the curse of sin? You know, most, um, most mornings this year, just weekdays, you know, I get up in the morning and I'm spending time in Scripture and I'm praying. And I've, I don't know why, but uh, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes has gripped me this year. And I don't know why, because it's probably the most depressing book in the whole Old Testament. And so if my sermons this year have been depressing, maybe that's why. But it's, um, here's, here's how Ecclesiastes starts. You ready for this? Here's, here's the leadoff, leadoff hitter. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And then it goes downhill from there. It's just incredible. But as I was reading again, I came across just this week again, Ecclesiastes 2, where the author says, 
I hated life. He's just being honest here. Isn't it refreshing, by the way, that this kind of honesty is in the Bible, is in Scripture? I hated life because all the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. And then he describes what he means by that. It's a chasing after the wind. You ever felt like your work is pointless? Isn't that a good image? Like we've had wind, we, have, we always have wind because we're on the coast. What happens when you chase the wind? One, can, can you catch it? Of course not. And even if you could, like what would you do with it once you caught it? It's futile. You ever felt like life or like your work or your call or your position in life just feels like a chasing after the wind? You're working for something and you don't even know what it is. You ever felt like life, there's got to be more to life than this? Whether that's your nine to five or whether it's just constantly day after day picking up your kids' stray socks and Legos. That all of that, if you've ever felt that, you have felt the curse, the curse of sin. And so this morning, we're going to really consider the curse. What does the curse look like? How does it affect us? And specifically, how does it affect our work? And here we're going to define work more narrowly, like our nine to five. But of course, if you're a student, your work is to go to school. And if you're, uh, if you're retired, then your work is to do whatever it is retired people do. I don't know. But apparently, you're all really busy in retirement. So whatever it is you're really busy doing, that's your work. How does the curse of sin affect your work? And how does it affect our relationships? Because Genesis 3 especially helps us make a lot of sense of this. Now, I'm going to use phrases like the curse of work and the curse of relationships. I've got to be careful. That's not a great phrase, but it just it kind of rolls off the tongue. That's not to say that work itself is a curse. And it's not to say our relationships are a curse. But there is a curse that we see in those areas of life. And when we say curse, that's a word we don't use a lot. We could probably think of it as, as something very similar to a consequence. What are the consequences of sin and how do we see those play out in our work and in our relationships? Let's start by considering work. God actually gives us a lot of work to do in Genesis 1 and 2, and we've spent the past five weeks talking about it. Quick recap, the very first work he gives us in Genesis 1, the first task he tells us to do is this, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. You hear that? Multiply. Fill the earth. I'm not going to talk too much more about this, but like literally, how do you fill the earth? You make babies. I'm going to get in trouble here because like somebody's going to go home and say, well, sweetie, Pastor Chris said, and like, you know, that's not the point though. Here's, here's the point. Now, none of you are, some of you are not going to hear anything else I say this morning. On page one of the Bible, here's the point. Page one of the Bible, God gives us a job. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And on page three of the Bible, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit that God told them not to eat of, God tells Eve, now there will be a curse over that process, over that work I've just given you. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing, your labor pains. And with pain, you will give birth to children. Your work, the work of filling the earth, will now be under the curse of sin and it will be excruciating. That's the curse. 
That's not to say the whole process is, and, and having children is a joy, and I'm not denying that, but there, there is an excruciating curse now that we feel, half of us feel. I haven't felt it. Some of you have felt that curse. It, I imagine it feels like a curse, doesn't it? We find our second work on page two of our Bibles. God says to Adam, work the garden and keep it. Work it and keep it. By the way, it's worth noting, God gives us work before sin. So work is a good thing as God gives it to us. He intends for work to be a good thing. But now there's a curse that affects our work, a consequence. Listen to the consequence. This is from Genesis 3. God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Side note, God never curses Adam and Eve. It's important to remember. Cursed is the ground because of you. And through painful toil, that's a very similar phrase to painful labor, isn't it? Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. If Adam were, if Adam, if the Garden of Eden were in New England, he would say, you will plow up your fields and you will hit nothing but rocks. There's a curse on our work. In other words, your work will be painful toil. This is written to an agricultural culture, and so God uses this agricultural language, but we obviously know that the the curse, the thorns and the thistles are not just literal thorns and literal thistles or literal rocks that you're trying to schlep out of your yard when you plant new flowers, but all the work that God has given us, multiplying, filling the earth, working, and keeping the garden, it's now under a curse, and we see it play out in life. And it is literal. Again, many of you have felt the literal curse of childbirth. But it's so much more than that because many more of us, maybe all of us, to some degree or another, have felt the curse as a family relationship, this thing that is supposed to be nurturing and life-giving, isn't. And whether that's with parents or whether that's with children or whether that's with our siblings, or whether that's with our spouses, or extended family, or God forbid, our in-laws, like wherever we see that, there are relationships that are meant to be nurturing and life-giving that aren't. You've felt the curse of sin. We see it in our relationships. We see it in our work. You see it in your work as your boss demands that you finish this project and then doesn't give you the resources that you need in order to get it done and then holds you to account. You've seen it at work as your coworkers take credit for the work that you did or as they gossip about you and talk about you behind your back. You see it at work when your employee, your direct report, can't seem to figure out how to show up on time or as that customer that you are really banking on ghosts you and refuses to pay, or a supplier you thought you had a good relationship with all of a sudden just drops you with no notice. If you're a student, you see it when a teacher shows preference to one student over another. Like whatever the work, we feel the curse, the thorns and the thistles, these things that are supposed to be life-giving, where we're supposed to be able to make a meaningful contribution to the world, now feels, like the author of Ecclesiastes says, meaningless. What's the point? Do we feel the curse in our work? 
Let's think more now about our relationships because we see it clearly, just as clearly, maybe more clearly there. On Genesis 2, page 2 of our Bibles, we get a good picture of what a marriage relationship is supposed to look like. And this applies beyond marriage, but I'm going to zoom in on marriage for just a minute here. We see that men and women are made equal in worth and in value and in dignity. There is an equal partnership between spouses. And I get that from one word that may catch you off guard from the word helper. If you have your Bible open, this is Genesis 2. I think it's like verse 18. If you don't, I'll read it for you. It says twice, actually. It tells us God makes women, makes woman, makes Eve as a helper for Adam, for man. And that word helper trips us up. A lot of that has to do with just the translation. It's not a great translation. Uh, The meaning of language changes over time, and it's hard to capture the essence of a word. So a lot of times when we hear that Eve was Adam's helper, we think of it in one of two ways. We think, one, she's kind of, okay, maybe she's kind of this, you know, like a first-year apprentice at a a trade whose basically your only job is to hand your boss the right wrench at the right time so that he can do the real work. He does the real work, and then she's just kind of, ah, she's just kind of the apprentice, just making life a little bit easier for him. Or to, to be more pointed, can I be a little bit pointed? I'm going to. People think that helper means women are supposed to stay home and raise the kids and have supper on the table by 5.30. That's a distortion of what Scripture teaches, and it has nothing to do with what this means, this word helper. Here's how I know. Because that same Hebrew word helper appears dozens of times in the Old Testament. And over 90% of the time, that same Hebrew word appears in the Old Testament. You know who it's describing? God. God. Exodus 18, God has been my help. Same word. Psalm 27, O Lord, you are my helper. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. This is a famous one. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. According to scripture, God is our helper. Do you dare treat God like the poor first-year apprentice whose job it is to hand you the tools so that you can do the real work while he watches on? Do you dare think of God as somebody just there to do the laundry and earn a living while you do the hard work of putting food on the table? If you don't dare think of God like that, then you ought not dare think of women like that, according to Scripture. In the Old Testament, a helper is someone who is indispensable. If you, if you don't have your helper with you, the enemy crushes your bones. If you don't have your helper with you, you burn out spectacularly. If you don't have your helper, the work flat out doesn't get done. In the Old Testament, you owe your livelihood and your life to the helper. You see what this means? You see what scripture is actually telling us about Eve and about women and their value and dignity? It means that Eve, the helper, is no second-rate assistant. She is just as critical to the work that God gives Adam. In fact, without her, Adam's work does not get done. She is an equal partner in his work. That is God's ideal. That's how scripture paints it, at least. But it doesn't always feel that way, does it? Why? 
because there's a curse. And we feel the effects, the consequence of sin. And now because of the curse, it doesn't feel like men and women are so much equal partners as working against one another. Look at the curse. Look at how God describes the curse. Now we're back in Genesis 3. God tells Eve, because you ate the fruit, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's the curse. Now, there are actually two different ways you could understand this, and it, also, it almost doesn't matter which one you take, but let's flesh out both just a little bit. One, it could just mean your desire will be for your husband. You'll desire a nurturing relationship, and he will have a more hierarchical attitude. It's possible. I, I think that's actually the less likely meaning, because that paints a one-sided, script, a one-sided picture, and Scripture is famously even-handed in how it treats all of us. The more likely solution is this. That Hebrew word for, for, your desire will be for your husband. That Hebrew word, and if you're following along in your Bible, there's probably actually a footnote that tells you this. That Hebrew word for can also mean against. What does it mean to change the translation to against? Your desire will be against your husband. There are actually some English translations of the Bible that translate something like, your desire will be contrary to your husband. I found one this week that that was the most pointed that I found. Very bluntly, you will desire to control your husband, it says, but he will rule over you. You get the the idea, right? Whether you take the first or the second approach, it almost doesn't matter. Because what it paints is that there is no longer an equal partnership between men and women. It's more of an unrequited inequality. We know this. You know that if you've ever watched a stand-up comedian in person or a bit on TV or just like the the three minutes that they get on a late-night show, you cannot hear a stand-up routine that doesn't riff on the differences between men and women. Like they get this. This is just a fact of life. That because of the curse, we think differently, we have different priorities, we often have have different goals. And there are exceptions, and I'm not saying it's purely a a cursed relationship. It's not, excuse me, it's not. But ask ask any married couple, married couples, answer, don't say out loud, but answer in your minds, especially if your spouse is sitting next to you. Have you felt the curse of sin in your marriage? Women, wives, have you had a desire contrary to your husband? Husbands, have you had a desire to rule over her? I mean, that sounds strong. Maybe it sounds so strong that we don't want to admit to it. Maybe flip the, flip the tables. If, if, you, if spouses won't be honest about themselves, ask them about each other. Wives, has it ever felt like he's tried to rule over you? Husbands, has it ever felt like she's tried to control you? See, both in men's attempts to rule over women, and I know there are exceptions, but this is the curse that we feel. In men's attempts to rule over women and in women's attempts to subvert men, it's all a result of the curse. This is not the natural order as God intends it. He intends us to be equal partners in the work to which he calls us. This isn't a sermon about gender and gender roles, and we're not going to get too much into that. And I know you can get in a lot of trouble in a a hurry this way. 
But the point of Genesis really isn't even to lay out specifically what the roles should be and what men should do or shouldn't do and women. And that's not the point. The point of this is to help us to recognize and to come to grips with the mindset that is behind our sin. That any time, any time a man or a woman tries to rule over or put down or subvert the other, especially when we use gender as a basis, we are giving ourselves over to the curse of sin. Plain and simple. Men are so fill in the blank. In your mind, not out loud. Women always dot, dot, dot. That's the curse. Make no mistake about it. God intends for us to delight in one another and to celebrate one another's unique gifts and tendencies and to quickly recognize the good in one another and to support and encourage one another and cheer one another on. Do you see? But we feel the curse. We feel the curse in our work that it's not the way it should be. We feel the curse in our relationships. They are not as they should be. And we're struck with the question, what now? How do we reverse the curse? We thought about this a little bit a couple weeks ago. We're going to spend more time this morning. And if some of this sounds familiar, that's on purpose. That's because we need, we cannot emphasize this enough. But in Genesis 3, we see a curse on work. We see a curse on relationships. There's a third curse. And the third curse actually has the answer and the way forward. In the third curse, God curses Satan. It's actually the first chronologically. And here's what he tells Satan. Listen to what he tells Satan or the serpent. I'm using those two interchangeably. He says, I will put enmity, that means hatred. I will put hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers And he will crush your head. Listen to this carefully. He will crush your head. This is to the serpent. And you will strike his heel. What is he? He's actually, he's kind of talking to Eve, but he's he's talking to Satan, but he wants Eve to overhear it. That's kind of what's going on. He wants us to overhear it. And he tells us that the woman, Eve, will have an offspring. She will be fruitful and multiply. And her offspring will have offspring and her, their offspring will have offspring and so on and so on until the famous words of Isaiah 9, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. To us a child will be born, God says. A son will be given. And the child will be born in the thick of the curse. I don't know if it's because of the Christmas carol Silent Night, but we have this, we have this, mental picture of the night that Jesus was born and we imagine that it was very quiet and it was very reverent. Fat chance. Honestly, like that's nowhere in scripture. And what, what childbirth has ever been a quiet, reverent event? Hmm? There's a songwriter named Andrew Peterson. He wrote a song about that night. Here's how it goes. I think this is probably a better picture of what it actually looked like. Here's the first three stanzas. It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean. The cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with the tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. 
It was, listen to the words here. This is intentional. It was a labor of pain. It was a cold sky above. But for the girl on the ground in the dark, with every beat of her beautiful heart, it was a labor of love. By the way, that's just good songwriting. (laughs) To us, a child is born through, not in spite of, not outside, there's no way around, but only through, through the excruciating curse of labor pains. And Jesus' birth was not exempt from that curse. And nor was his death. Remember the curse on the ground? It will produce thorns and thistles for you. On the day that he was crucified, Matthew 27, we learn that the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him and they stripped him And they put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a what? A crown of thorns. And put it on his head and put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. In his birth and in his death, Jesus was not exempt from the curse. In fact, the thorns that are a nuisance to us spelled death to Jesus. The thorns, which are just a hazard, an occupational hazard for our work, became the very thing that capped his work, his death. And the broadest curse, we haven't even touched on this. This is why we could go weeks longer. Back in Genesis 2, God tells Adam, on the day that you eat of it, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And Jesus Christ, God's son himself and God himself, bore the curse, took the curse, didn't go around the curse, but straight through it just because he loves us. I mean, it's a good question. You've got to ask yourself at some point, why did, Je- why did Jesus do what he did? Why did he become human? Why did he suffer in his life on earth? And he did suffer. And why did he suffer the most excruciating death in history? Because of love. Why did he bear the whole curse upon himself and as we saw two weeks ago, actually become the curse on our behalf like it says in Galatians 3? Just because of love. Just because he loves you and he loves me. That famous verse, John three sixteen. God so what? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son That whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die, should not suffer the curse of death, but have eternal life. The life that God intended for us from the start. You will strike his heel, God tells Satan. I don't know what it feels like to get a snake bite on your Achilles. I imagine it's excruciating. I imagine it feels like death. But there's an odd good news about this. Because God tells us and he tells Jesus that this death that you feel, the death that you experience will feel like death and yet it will be a strike on the heel, but he will crush your head. 
Yes, in his death, because of love, Jesus bore the curse of sin. He became the curse of our sin. And at the same time, he crushed the curse of sin so that the curse no longer has power over us. I mean, yes, we still feel it, but it does not rule us. And there was no other way, no no way around. He had to go through, he had to die, and he died willingly simply because he loves us and he wants to reestablish his relationship and his presence with us. At the cross, you will strike his heel, yes. At the cross, Satan and the powers of darkness surely thought they had won. And they feasted Friday and probably Saturday, but not on Sunday. They didn't know that God had actually given them just enough rope with which to hang themselves. So that the new creation God is making through Jesus and because of the resurrection and because the curse of death no longer has victory over us. This is why we start every funeral with Jesus' words from John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. The curse of death is broken through Jesus' death. So we have this to look forward to in Revelation 22. Let me finish by reading. We've been on pages one, two, and three of our Bible for the past six weeks. Let me read page like a thousand. Whatever the last page, this is literally the last chapter in your Bible. Whatever the last page in your Bible is, this is it. This is John's vision of what the new creation will look like. He writes, Then the angel showed me the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. By the way, there is a river flowing out of the Garden of Eden and there's a river flowing out of, there's obvious symbolism here. We don't have time. I wish we did. I saw the river and on each side of the river stood, what? The tree of life. Right there in Revelation 22. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. By the way, what what tree yields fruit every month? None of them but the tree of life does. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Verse three, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. That's S-U-N, sun, S-U-N. For the Lord God, the sun, S-O-N, will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Amen.